0: And welcome back, or welcome to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, another lovely day.
1: Oh, you already know. We're back. Giving the people what they want. And if you want something extra special, go ahead to the highperformance.com website. Check it out. It's back. It has daily awesome content, and sign up for the Bolton, so you can get that weekly review, plus goodies, discounts, and little tidbits of nuggets from Steve and or I in your inbox every Monday.
0: Look at that. More information to make you a better coach. That's what we're all about here on this podcast, in this partnership, all that good stuff. And today we're going to try and do just that, which is make you a better coach, hopefully make ourselves better coaches by understanding what it means to be in shape, to be fit, and to be able to perform. John, why don't you take us through how you delineate those different ideas that often become commingled?
1: Right. I think it's a spectrum. So, for me, you know, uh, I, along with Alan Bishop, and a lot of other coaches often say health drives performance. So, what that means specifically is, You have the foundational element of health. Health is just, you know, basically, how's your blood? Um, You can't shake, you know, kind of crystals on me and cure cancer. Um, You know, that's kind of woo-woo or make-believe medicine, as I like to say, versus, like, we actually have to do a blood profile, blood panel, and look at what are the various uh, constituting elements, you know, of your internal uh, workings of your human body. So, that's the foundation. If you're not healthy, as in you have low iron levels or uh, you have uh, your hemocrit levels are all off or something like that, it doesn't matter how hard you train, how much work you do, you're just not going to get any return on that. So, the first step's always health. Then you have um, fitness, right? And fitness is very simple. Fitness is the ability to Um, to do a task. So some people are very fit to work on their computer eight hours a day and write a whole bunch of emails or make um, PowerPoint presentations. Other people are really fit to run 10 miles a day at a certain pace. Others are really fit to swim or play basketball for two hours. So that's just fitness is just your ability to complete a task. Performance then is your ability to complete a task at a certain threshold of capacity. So in that analogy, fitness is, can you run 10 miles? Yes or no. doesn't matter the pace. In the performance, then uh, um, uh, stop on the spectrum. It's, can you run 10 miles at six minute pace? Can you run it at five minute pace? Can you do this with this kind of standard of uh, performance associated with it? Then finally, we get to the upper end, which is high performance. High performance encapsulates all of those but it also is determinant on competing against other people when the lights go on and uh, the race is official so that whole spectrum feeds into one another and a lot of times we say someone's in shape they're fit wow they um, can do this they're good to go but it might not be the correct context for what is actual reality because you might only have one data point which is a workout and or time trial or a race and then you might extrapolate that they're going to always going to have this level of ability uh, no matter the circumstance or conditions moving forward in a season or maybe moving forward throughout the trajectory of the career. So I think it's really important to get that foundational understanding of those different spots and stops on the spectrum so when we say things we're very precise versus kind of like having this general lexicon that gets blurred and then we don't really understand exactly um what one's talking about or make inferences that aren't uh you know accurate.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's it's interesting because I think in our sport a lot of times we are heavy on the fitness side because it's something that that uh heavily impacts what we do so that distinction between like fitness and performance isn't as clear as it is in other sports right when you you play basketball there's a clear distinction between like the fitness and conditioning required and you know playing the game or performing in the game time right in running it's it's intermingled because the performance is so dependent on the fitness aspect. But I think what we're saying here is as you make your way up that continuum is performance encompasses fitness, but it is not entirely fitness. Yet we spend a whole heck of a lot of time on uh, developing that fitness uh, task task dependent component. So, you know, as I look around the landscape of where we are in 2020 right now, I think what we're seeing is a lot of maintenance of fitness and then displaying of fitness, but we don't have the opportunities to, or most of us don't uh, have the opportunities to then move up that next level of performance would you agree
1: yeah i think that's the hard thing about our sport and running in general is it's heavily uh, weighted closed skill with open skill components meaning closed skills are things that are repeatable dependable if you just elevate this uh, ability you're going to get better and in running if you have better plumbing right the bare cardiovascular system blood profile ability to pump that you get a lot better but we know that races, or performance, or outcomes of seasons, are not solely contests of who has the best plumbing. If that was the case, we just mail in VO2 max numbers and hematocrit levels and ferritin levels, and the person who ever had the highest, we say, "Hey, you win," <laughs> right? We don't do that though. There is correlation between people who have higher uh, plumbing values, as I say, and who are able to be more highly competitive but not always the case, right? We know the athlete with the highest VO absolute VO2 max is not necessarily going to be the winner. There's a high likelihood they may be, but running economy impacts that. Resistance to fatigue impacts that. Lactic threshold velocity, a bunch of other key performance variables impacts that ability to express fully your VO2 max. Uh, you know, and so it ends up being a poor indicator or poor predictor of performance because there's other variables compounding that. Same situation here. In the current uh, day and age, like, you know, we're left with the opportunities we have, right? So the opportunities we have right now is to, for people to display their plumbing, their fitness. And there's a lot of people who are displaying that um, very uh, interestingly or very pronounced in the moment because you're like, hey, I'm, I have this great plumbing for having trained at a high level for 10 years or five years or, you know, what have you. Uh, And so that's interesting But we lose the context of what sport's really about, in my opinion, where it's about competing against the other. And the other is essentially the unknown, uh, the other human being. It does matter who's in the race. It does matter uh, what's at stake in the race, right? There's a lot of low stakes contests going on right now with these pop-up meets or things like that which, you know, again, uh, afford the ability to run a faster time or have a more complete display of someone's current fitness. But you take all these same actors or runners, right, and you put them in a championship or you put them in Olympic trials or an Olympic round, the perceived stakes are higher. And so then the ability to perform has been um, impacted for better or ill, right? Steve, you, you know, and I are very keenly aware of the psychology of running. In fact, that's one of the courses that we offer on um, the High Performance West Academy uh, program because that has a profound impact is our um, perception of things. Even though we don't have the objective data to say, I perceive this at this level and this um, then is a, gives me arousal or dampens my arousal to this degree. We don't have those um, ability to track it as specifically as we do, like say, with a stopwatch with splits. But the longer I think I've coached Steve, and I think the longer you've coached, uh, I think more and more important is that perception and that psychological interpretation um, on performance than say um, solely just the efficacy of someone's plumbing.
0: Yeah, you know, um, a couple of things stand out there in what you said is, first, it it makes me or uh, reminds me of uh, Dr. Siri Evans, who's a psychologist who works with uh, a bunch of high performing teams and athletes in New Zealand, um, had this model in one of his books that was essentially uh, trained to train, trained to compete, trained to win and then trained to dominate. Or train to whatever it is. And I think this train to train versus train to compete versus train to win is very similar to this like fitness to performance to high performance model. And I think what you're getting at there in terms of the the, the psychology is it's interesting, right? When we think of practice, how many of your athletes are afraid to fail in practice? Well, very few, right? There might be some. But the threat is very low for most of us, unless we're in an <laughs> abusive coaching um, partnership, we'll call it. But the threat is very low because if we fail at practice, nothing really bad happens, right? The coach isn't going to let you go. Like, you know, you're, you're, it's not public, it's only you and your teammates, et cetera, et cetera. If you fail on your own, And it's that practice, no one knows, doesn't matter, the logbook, blah, 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 et cetera. So, the threat is low. As we move up through that, okay, practice, threat is low so we can take higher risks, right? We can push it and occasionally blow up, you know, occasionally fall apart. It's okay. It's not a big deal. As we move up in terms of, you know, that that we'll say is the bottom layer, that train to train or that developing fitness. But as we move through the, the categories here, let's say our next step is um, a time trial or what you're seeing now, which is a lot of you know uh, pacing with teammates, which is great. I think that's a great way to utilize this time when we don't have races and, and to give athletes some motivation and something to do. But let's look at it from a psychological standpoint. The threat is higher than practice. But not that much, right? Because everything is controlled to a degree. The pacing is controlled. The atmosphere essentially is, you know, the who is there is controlled, right? Who you're competing against is controlled. Largely your teammates or people you're comfortable with or, you know, other um, athletes who are in the vicinity who you, who you know. So, it's a controlled environment. And this is why a lot of or not a lot but this is why at the elite elite level you'll see coaches or agents or whoever try and control who gets in races when there's a uh you know, our record or attempt. Oh, dear right? God,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's, it's nauseating, actually. Yeah, <laughs>
0: it's, it's nuts, but it occurs at a very high level and with vi- the, some of the best athletes in the country and in the world. And the reason it does is simply this, this dichotomy we're going from fitness to high performance. Because in record attempts... They're relying on fitness more so and they don't want the psychology to come into play in terms of threat and control. Because if there's someone else in there who could, you know, the athlete has to worry about, the threat goes up, right? The control goes down because now it's not just, hey, I can take a risk and stay on this pace for as long as I can and see if I can do it, right? There's a threat of someone else overtaking stealing the spotlight being the the Chris Zelensky in the 10k that's the that's the example that, that comes to my mind when he set the American record right but that that is why agents coaches etc trying to control because it's not it's not a, a pure high performance situation it's not a pure fitness one either it's this kind of in between zone here right because on the psychology. And then we move to the highest level, let's say this high performance championship, what happens? Even if your fitness is at the high at the height, your control is down, right? Because you there's no pacers, you don't control the race, you don't know how it's gonna uh, you know, play out, et cetera, et cetera. Threat is higher because the value of the competition is higher, your rewards, your risk, et cetera, it means more. So at the highest performance, we're in a very low control and a very high threat state versus if we go all the way down to fitness, the both of those, you know, low threat, high control. So it's this interesting psychological, um, you know, Malou framework we're playing with here as we move up from this fitness to high performance or this, you know, training to competing in championship uh, That that, you know, we're dealing with.
1: And we spend, you know, as coaches and athletes, a lot of time on the technical and tactical advancement of fitness because it does matter. It does have an impact. Um, you know, we can't, you can't negate that. But I think it's sometimes to a detriment of understanding, you know, what Steve sometimes and I call the softer side, or what a lot of people call the art of preparation, the art of competition, the art of coaching, the art of performance, in that there are, psychological variables that few if any of us have control over and this is why you're seeing more and more sports psychs um, professionals coming to light not just in you know uh, athletics but also in football basketball baseball and all the other um, big sports because it does have a distinguishing element and advantage um, and how you frame the context of what you're going into and your perception has a significant impact because expectation as Steve pointed out is critical. A lot of times we're going to play or compete up to our level of expectation, given the entire um, circumstance of the uh, in environment. And so if everything is known and this is what all these time trial races, you know uh, not just now, but even leading up to uh, now and more normal times with like Stanford, Oxy um, you know, and what's, become of like say Portland track festival and all these types of uh, you know meets is we do and we did such a such a you know um intense job of trying to control all the variables here's the pacing here's how long the pacing is going for only these number of people in the race only this level of people in the race right you created all these um known knowns and so that could put all these athletes at ease so they could just focus on the thing that mattered most was trying to express their fitness at the highest possible uh, level and it works it works really really well and it's really exciting to run a fast time like that's there's a lot of value to that but then you know fast forward right to a championship environment where it might be adverse conditions really hot or in humid, or it might be um, a different uh, unknown strategy about pacing where it's sit and kick or uh, fart licks or what have you uh and the fittest person doesn't necessarily always win this is why i love NCA cross country or world cross country racing and i think a lot of people do is because it's not just oh they're the most dominant they're the most fit they're the best they have the fastest prs and you hear this all the time right people often you know say oh look at the team that has the fastest 5k prs that team's probably going to win NCA cross not always the case, you know, top down because of the psychological variable that's so potent in that because you're on this big, massive starting line with like 200 people, no coach, no athlete can possibly control 200, uh, you know, independent actors and players in that symphony. And this is why things, uh, like say a couple of years back at, in the NCAA, uh, men's 10 K championship on the track when, uh, Two uh, Kenyans from Alabama went out uh, and just started like chugging, um, you know, dropping like too flat for the first 800. It decimated the whole field because it was a hotter day in Eugene and that's not how the game was played. And they just started doing all this surging component stuff. And that's where Ben Flanagan ended up hanging on and winning. He might have not been the most fit, outright fit athlete in the field in terms of if we just ran even pace tempo all the way, who would win that day? But he was definitely the most prepared to perform. And that's where I think the coach's job and the athlete, even in these kind of trying and difficult uh, dearth of opportunity times, that is the COVID, this COVID era, we need to remember we need to continue to, yes, enhance and build fitness, but also not shy away from the progression of uh, performance preparation.
0: You know, NCAA cross is one of my favorite races for that reason. Is that you line up 200 plus people. You have all these people who are really good, who are used to being in the front of races and having some sort of control and understanding of how it's going to go. But because of the dynamics of cross country, all that gets thrown out the window.
1: Right? Well, yeah. I mean, how many times is like the regional champion team, you know, that was like oh we're, we're they're picked to be top five finish you know in the bottom half pretty often, right, or and you've had this too with like say Brian Brazo, like, I remember that one year you, you were like, oh, he's super fit, I'm really excited, you know, oh man, this is great, and then I think he got out and he finished like what two hundred and fiftieth or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because of the crucible that is high level championship competition it's it's tough stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I always like to use, I'm going to go back uh, in my day, I I like to use the example of um, one year in college, me and my teammate, uh, well, me and two teammates made it to nationals as individuals. We had three individuals, but me and uh, one of them had raced four times, four or five times that year and had averaged about four seconds difference in our time. Like over those five times, like we were always finishing essentially within a couple seconds of each other, you know, even over 10K, right? We raced two 10Ks and, and finished, I think, three or four seconds within each other. And that was the normal Right. And then at nationals, he ended up 40th and I ended up like 200th. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because that, like, even though we trained together every day, had the same fitness, had up to that point over four or five races, like run the same exact times, races, performance, all that stuff. Because of the crucible that is NCAA cross country, like, we ended up in Completely different spectrums, right? Because that—that's what happens, and that's why you know, I. When I think about cross, I think about this. Will date me a little bit, but I think about those like John McDonald teams who always figured out how to show up, and that is what, like that is what McDonald was really good at is making this jump from these guys are really fit to these guys are going to perform on this day. And cross country is one of the, you know, NCAA cross is one of the most brutal things to do. And even at the high school level, you see this um, for the NXN and the major national championships. I mean, even,
1: fl- even at the state level too, sometimes, you
0: know? Yeah, that's true. You, you, you see it. I think it's anytime it, and it, what it is, and we're talking a lot about the highest level, but what it is, is it's when you make this jump, right? Mm-hmm. When you go from a situation where you largely know where to what to expect, you largely know what your competitors are going to do, and you get thrown into a situation that has low control, right? Heightened expectations, low control, um, high variability on what could occur, right? You could have people go out in the 10k at in sub 60 you know i will never forget the first 10k i ever ran in cross country and alistair craig took it out in the first mile in like 420 something and i'm like what in the world <laughs> yeah <laughs> what 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 is this what kind of race did i get myself into this is insane um but that's the that's what makes cross country fun and it's it's that step of going from controlled, understandable to no control, highly variable, and figuring it out.
1: And that's, I think, the thing that is the misnomer about breakthrough races. Right, uh, this one gets me all the time. People run a PR or uh, have a, a or a big jump in um, performance in terms of the time on the um, that they record for a distance. And they go, and everyone says, it's a breakthrough performance. This was a break. It's only a breakthrough performance if it is then continually followed up by successive performances at or above that um, breakthrough uh, level, right? So you see this all the time, even in normal times. Someone runs a crazy fat time at some time trial meet in perfect conditions, and they're lauded as – the next coming of, you know, Jesus or whatever for their level, and, you know, you name it, pro college, etc. And then it just, they just bounced down. They bounced down back to normal levels of performance or not quite as um, elevated levels of performance of they experienced at that quote unquote breakthrough race. Because it really necess- it wasn't necessarily a breakthrough performance, it was just, an expression of fitness, um, or a true or a high expression of fitness, but not performance. Performance is the a skill or ability to replicate, um, you know, the capacity or the, to demonstrate repeatedly, over and over and over again, the ability to compete at a certain level, and that's performance to me. So. What you want to see is you want to see an athlete have a breakthrough race and then another and another and another or a sustained period of competitive ability over the course of a season. If that sustains over the course of a season and then it's elevated the next season and the season after that, then you might be able to three seasons later point back to that breakthrough race as a thing that predicated and created this cascade of ability um, and progress forward. But just you can't in the moment uh, say it's a breakthrough performance because it was a PR or it was the fastest they've ever ran. I've seen this happen all the time and far too much, unfortunately, with too many, you know, motivated athletes and smart coaches. And then they think the athlete is then, okay. you ran this time and now you're at this level. So we're just going to do all workouts at this level and have this expectation that you're always going to perform at this level of competency and ends up corroding the athlete or overtrains the athlete or burns the athlete out because this, they agree, everyone agrees that they're at this new level because they just ran this race. But the reality is they aren't quite fully there yet. And that's where I'm always actually super cautious when someone has a, um, you know, uh, a big leap in demonstrated performance or a, a PR because I've learned over time. Cause I've made this mistake too. That we need to see a little bit more demonstrated proof of this. Um,
0: you, you know, I think it's just it's just another example of like the psychology of it, right, coming into play heavily because it's like all of a sudden we see data. Essentially, oh, this person ran this. Now he's at an elevated level. Well, the the, the psychology changes as well. Like expectations change, right? Sometimes they change in the positive direction sometimes in the negative direction right and that those expectations change not only for the athlete but the coach like the coach how they sees the athlete can alter as well and sometimes too much right where the athlete you know the coach changes his uh, expectation for that athlete way too much starts assigning way too hard workouts etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's difficult you know i a lot of times this is the problem with our sport in that it's so defined by time and that everything we do is so wrapped up in time, including our coaching, which is all based on time and splits and like, you know, assigning splits and all that stuff, that sometimes we we do a disservice to our athletes by, you know, creating this expectations. I'm reminded of something that um, a sports psychologist, Dr. Brian Zuliger, you know, said once, which is advice he gave which was stop defining yourself by your PRs like create an average of let's say your five best performances in in the 1500 and your goal is to increase that average because if you if you raise that floor then you know who knows when when everything goes well your best performance will get will increase as well but it's like it's more manageable and frames things better than just saying, you know what, our PR is all we define and if that changes, everything changes and, you know, we're going to redo and change all our training.
1: I think uh, you you nailed it. Like, um, you know, Dan John, who, you know, you've had, we've had uh, come and talk on the uh, um Uh, I forget what they were, mini courses or something, but who Steve knows really well, uh, who I'm a big fan of. He calls it easy strength. And this concept of easy strength is something that he and also like Anthony Bondarchuk and a lot of forward-thinking coaches, um, going all the way back to the granddaddy of modern-day endurance training, uh, for modern-day endurance running training, Arthur Newton, talked about, which is raise the average. Don't chase the highest peak, but instead just make your base level elevation a bit better. And Mother Nature can't be hustled. So the concept here is pretty simple. It's go at what is perceived as relatively easy or moderate. And as that level of easy or moderate naturally increases through uh, consistency and um, repetition over time, that raises everything up. So your, your peak will also be higher as well. You know, Arthur Newton, he's essentially the one that Arthur Lytiard, uh, uh like kind of copied and pasted or was influenced by a lot of his ideas. They they both advocated very similar things, but Arthur Newton came in the late 20s, early 30s uh, to prominence. It's just he was so advanced, he wasn't really realized until about the 60s or 70s when they started to take his ideas and apply them uh, more universally. Uh, and But one of the key things was that, was – Spend time raising your base. And this is where the idea of base training came in is it's like, what is the ground floor? And if you elevate that ground floor, everything else from that will be stronger and more um, pronounced and also more sustainable. And I think we just have to get back to just remembering that, like, you know, not posting only your best workouts or being excited about your best workouts. But even the, the, the average workouts or the workouts, you don't feel good. The workouts are just kind of what I call punch the clock, just another day. What's, what's that, you know, um, average looking like? Like this concept that you need to bring like 20% or elevator or like, you know, get in the zone to produce this um, high achieving or sexy split workout It's kind of foolish in my opinion. It's just that's not how mother nature works. It's not how training works. Um, What you want is you just want the unsexy workouts to slowly and surely, you know, just get a little bit better so that the perceived level of exertion is appropriate for the pace that you're running. And over time, it will all elevate if you just stay the course. This is why fartlek training was and has and still is such a powerful tool because the only things you have in fartlek training are your perceived level of exertion on that day. uh, And then potentially a stop and go period. And you don't even need to use a stopwatch. You just start and go as long as you want, um, you know, as long as feels good. And that's kind of the value of that is because our biorhythms are, uh, you know, oscillate and change. And that's why we have to go hard easy because a lot of times the stimulus or stress that we impose on ourselves is not fully realized by the body and the nervous system until sometimes uh, 24 to 36 hours after that high intense or high stress period, because you have all these uh, adaptive hormones are, you know, flooding your body so you can meet the demands of that stress. But then as you start to recover and rest, those precipitate away. And then all of a sudden you're just left feeling exhausted or you know, low energy one or two days later. And you go, what's wrong with me? I just, I just did this amazing race for this amazing workout. But the demand physiologically and psychologically and hormonally was so high that now you have to kind of like, you know, repay that debt, so to speak, as Steve and I talk about by going super easy or low intensity to no intensity or light intensity state as you can completely recoup from that effort.
0: Yeah, it's it's that ebb and flow, and I think you know what we're kind of circling around here. We've ended we've ended up in an interesting place. Is it's this ebb and flow of like not only psychological stress or workload, but uh, you know physical as well, and it's these two that interplay that we have to recognize and um and account for, and as we kind of make our way back to this kind of, well, what's the difference between fitness and, you know, competing or performing or what have you, is I think that's it. In practice, let's say we do a very hard workout, well, the physical stress is high, the psychological stress is is moderate, right? Because there's no threat, there's no nothing, blah, blah, blah. It's just the psychological stress of like going toward to exhaustion. But as you as you work your way towards high demand, or we'll say in this case, even breakthrough performances, a lot of times that psychological stress, the physical stress might be the same, but the psychological mental stress is uh, increased several fold. And that's why you have that, as you just talked about, that kind of couple days after you just feel drained (laughs) and and it's interesting because like I'm, I'm sure you know I see this a lot in the marathon where the you know the day after sometimes they're still riding on the high and then they're like oh I can train I can train I can go out for a run and then day two three four somewhere in that range it's like oh my gosh I just got hit by a bus like my mind doesn't work I can't process anything like I don't yeah. want to run <laughs> and you're just kind of in this mental fried state and that it's interesting to think about because it's this interplay and and you can use that feedback as well is a lot of times we're used to listening to the physical feedback of you know this is sore this is this feels fatigued you're tired or whatever have you But the psychological feedback of like, how is your mind working? How sharp are you in processing things? Like, Mm -hmm. does your brain kind of feel like mush? Like, that might be an indicator that from a physical side, you need some rest as well.
1: I think that's the thing about peak performance, right? Is, you know, a peak means that you're going to come down and either you're going to step down or fall down. And that's the hard part too, is I've had athletes who had great seasons or great finale races, and they can't wait to get back to training. They just want to keep training because they think it just gets better. I'll just keep doing more. It's like, no, the thing about a peak is there's an upslope, and we're trying to time that ascension to that pinnacle to coincide with a certain date or time period of racing. But there's then also the inverse of it, which is going to be that slide down. And it's not a full slide down all the way to square one. Unless you get hurt or, you know, like you said, Steve, you don't honor uh, the, um, the debt that you need to repay. But you do need to understand it's far better to step down than to slide down. Um, and so the hard part is having this concept of being in shape year round or having this concept of, oh, time trials demonstrates all this great fitness people have. And again, time trials are very, very useful, I think, to create motivation in the athlete to demonstrate um, improvement of, of fitness and progression. I mean, like Bowerman, you know, uh, you know, uh, Lydiard, uh, uh, Serity, uh, I mean, you name it, like all the um, coaches, a lot of coaches use time trial efforts as a regular staple in their training just to give the athletes a context of how their progression of training was working. And they a lot used just again on percent or perceived effort levels. So they would just run, say, three laps at three-quarters effort for that athlete, not giving them a split and just run. They do that once every two weeks. Like Lana does that with his training, whether it's a time trial or a race. They use it as a guiding, a signpost about the direction that things are heading, but they don't take that time trial. And then say, look, I'm now going to be this fit all the time or I'm going to perform at this level all the time and then create this corrosive expectation that because I ran this time trial in this setting that now that's the new standard of who I am. And then the, you know, can get really upset when they don't meet that level of ability or, or that output again and hit that mark versus no, it's again, training to me is always geared towards a certain uh endpoint or a certain uh period of racing and that's the whole point of peak performance is you're trying to come to this peak at the right time and unfortunately right now in the COVID era, we don't have that um you know we just have these kind of pop-up things or maybe it's happening maybe it's not so the question is okay how do you stay fit and prepare to perform in this kind of um unknown or time of uncertainty when like, it doesn't look like we're going to have the types of seasons we're used to having back anytime soon.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's it's a tough question to answer. You know, I, I think as I sit here, you know, you, you kind of hit it on the head there at the end where you said, what do we do when it doesn't look like we're going to have the types of seasons that we're used to having, right? And that's something that I've struggled with as as a college coach on how this fall and then potentially going into the spring, do I keep like? Well, let's step back. Keeping the fitness is easy. Okay, this is it's the easy part. <laughs> The, fit, the fitness for us is until we know what we're doing, we're training at about 80% of, you know, our capacity, right? So, what does that mean? It's not necessarily in volume or intensity. We just don't really go to the well and we do enough to keep everything we can fit. What is everything we can fit? It means we're doing tempo runs. We're doing short sprints. It means we're doing 200s on the track. means we're doing mile repeats. We're not pressing any of them. We're just kind of doing them, right? Because that gives us the widest breadth of fitness at a time when we're not sure what's going to happen. Now, we'll set up some time trials, but we'll also set up some interteam competition. So this is my solution. I don't know if it'll work out. We'll report back in a couple months. Okay. But we've split the team up into, you know, or we are splitting the team up into three, you know, three different teams essentially. Uh, mixed between men and women. We'll have a draft, right? Where team captains get to pick and then we'll do inter con- interteam relays competitions etc with scoring involved does that mimic everything that we miss from not having a cross-country season no absolutely not does it increase the threat in a fun way a little bit i think it's lower threat because it's just our team but it also you know we're gonna hype the crap out of this so that it 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 feels like a big deal and it will be a big deal to us. So, we get some of that competition around there. Now, I don't think we need a ton of it, but in my head, I sit here and I say, you know what, we haven't competed in a race since um, March. Um, We're not going to compete in a race maybe until March of the following year, right? So, that's going to be possibly a year off with zero competitions against others so how do we keep those instincts and that psychology sharp Um, because the fitness takes care of itself that's not the hard part the hard part is how do we prepare when we're going to be thrust into the crucible again
1: and that's the importance of a racing season too is you learn as you race a lot more than you do in training You know, and even before this, there was this shift that was happening where a lot of people are like, let's, you know, uh, replicate like the Bowerman model of train all the time and race sparingly only when we're sure our fitness is at the highest level. And again, context matters for that demographic of athlete who has a lot of high level racing in their experience, a lot of championship racing experience who, you know, is in a very elite crowd. Sure, that can make sense. Well, But uh, for you, most people, probably not.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think that's the thing that for people forget is that works really well at that level because largely every single one of those athletes went through the high school and NCAA system, were tested, came out as NCAA champions, you know, for the most part, a couple exceptions, but, you know, for the most part were... And have proved their crucible of racing at that level. And now they've they're taking those skills and translating it to the highest level, which you know, Jerry Schumacher has decided, you know, less racing, more kind of control, which makes sense. But we can't as you said, we can't apply that model to people at the college or or high school level who haven't learned or developed those skills yet.
1: Right. And that's the thing about racing is you get athletes tend to get a lot more, especially the younger and developing athletes out of racing, uh, than just this really disciplined numerical linear progression of training. And, you know, let's not um forget too, it also doesn't work. Uh you know, the famous uh men's Wisconsin cross-country team in the, you know, late uh two thousands that was like Shoo-in guaranteed. I mean, you had Tegenkamp, Selinski, Simon Byru, uh, Matt Withrow. Like this team was like picked to dominate NCAA cross that year, and they believed it too, right? And they thought, oh, we our track times, our PRs, our fitness. There's no way we can lose the NCAA cross country meet, but they did, right? Um, because again, it also had to go in the psychology, and you learn by failure. You learn by coming up against. Um, trying circumstances or uh, circumstances you couldn't predict and seeing if you were apt to respond to them or not. And that's what racing does. It's kind of why like the benefit of, um, you know, 800 meter runners who really good training is frequent racing of the 400 to the eight and the 15, they tend to come on really pronounced at the end of the season because the demands of racing physiologically and also psychologically start to like really uh, peak and um, refine them in a way that maybe doesn't with say the 10 K runner and why it's actually a value to have, in my opinion, like a 10 K runner race frequently with like a lot of 15s, right? Even though they might not have success in the mile against other milers, they can do that race in a normal season frequently, but it will also teach them a lot race in or race out. To prepare them and elevate them for their primary race, which is the 10K.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, there's benefits to it, and it's um, it's really where you learn learn how to execute tactics, learn how to deal with the psychology of it, um, all that good stuff is is what it's what it's kind of about. And if you don't. Put yourself in those positions, and I'd say put yourself in those positions and fail occasionally. Um, then you're not going to learn and develop, you know. And every, again, not to say that every other sport gets it right and we get it wrong. I mean, we get a lot of a lot of things right that most sports get wrong. But I I think that this interplay between fitness and racing and competing is so intertwined in our sport, and not divided, that a lot of times we lose these lessons, right? In track, we don't have race or film reviews, right? We don't do it. That occurs in every other sport because they're looking at learning from the competition. Like, what do we need to practice on now? As coaches, we reflect on it sometimes. But it's int- it's interesting just to think about that because are we saying that like, hey, tactically there's nothing we can learn from it hey from a you know execution standpoint is there nothing that we can learn from it i don't think that's the case i think we do it intuitively a little bit but i don't think we put as much emphasis on it because all of our or most of our emphasis is on okay we didn't win we didn't you know, re- run a PR, that means we need to go back and do A, B, C, and D workouts, right? If an athlete doesn't run well or race well, the inclination as a coach is almost always to look to the workouts, which I think is fine, is good, but understanding the complexity of it, you know, helps as well.
1: Yeah, it's, the hard part is the tyranny of the stopwatch, right? Um you know, it it's the statistic that is definitive of runners like, you know, and it's very straightforward. That's why our sport is, you know, attractive to a lot of people. You are your number in a lot of ways, right? Uh whether it's high jump, pole vault, or the ten thousand meter. But the tyranny of the stopwatch and the tyranny of being constantly measured is is it, again, going back to the psychology of it that Steve and I are talking about, it's like you can't expect it to be sunny every single day. Uh, there's going to be rainy days. There's going to be days where, in periods where you're going to have these um, step backs, right? Or these corrections. Um, but those don't last forever either. And so it's what do you do in those moments? And then how do you create an overall progression? This is why, you know, again, on a tangent for periodization, right? A lot of periodization schemes don't work because most periodization schemes are. Uh, Constructed to have a very linear or sequential progression that is measured, you know, in these in very strict or predictable intervals of time. About six weeks is about the time it takes for the body to adapt fully to a repeated stimulus. It's about that. It's not perfect. Now, it's like anything in training. If you take the cake out the oven too soon. Or leave it in too long, it's just not going to come out uh, as you intended. But it's about six weeks. And then every six weeks, you should kind of change over the emphasis of the training to a newer or novel stimulus. You know, Steve and I talk a lot about, uh, too, you introduce qualities, you stabilize them, then you maintain them. So never take anything out, but you don't need to continue to elevate all the um, qualities concurrently. Once you find the good enough point of stable point, that's when you layer in a new stimulus. And uh, when we forget that, I sometimes like when a time trial has a really awesome mark or when we're so focused just on getting a little bit faster every run or getting a little bit faster uh, every, every week, that's when we start to get to re- into corrosion patterns. And we're sometimes racing in um, different contexts is, is, very helpful. Like in Houston, right? You you will go to Mount Sac in a normal track um, season. And, you know, someone will run a really, you know, fast five K and feel really positive about themselves in PR. But then they come back at rice two weeks later and run a 15. And all of a sudden that 15 was really felt really, really hard because you're in hotter, more humid weather in, late April in, <laughs> in Houston and the athletes goes, I thought I was fit. Well, context specific you are. And we also know that, you know, training and racing and humidity is poor man's altitude. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's just understanding how all those things factor in. And in this time period of unpredictable era, how do you continue to sharpen and advance the competitive, um, uh, crucible of the mind, even though we don't have all these exciting novel opportunities to go up against all these unknowns, i.e. other competitors in different race race settings, when it's just kind of, you know, more this controlled or predictable or stable environment of your team, teammates in practice in the same setting over and over and over again.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a lesson that might seem obvious to us coaches, but we forget that athletes don't quite grasp that, you know. I deal with this every single year, right where we go somewhere where the weather's nice, competition is good, et cetera. We compare that to what we do at home and how difficult it is and like people lose confidence after something much more difficult in the lovely weather of April, May in Houston even though the effort or the performance was just as good or sometimes better, you know, and it's something that you have to teach athletes how the context kind of matters and, and impacts things and prepare them for that so that, you know, they're, like it or not they judge their performance in a way that is maybe different than what we would and a lot of times it's based on prs and stuff like that like we've talked about but it's your job as a coach to like prepare understand and help them like weave that into their story and it's not an excuse it's dealing with reality right and i think i think that's the key no different than you know in other sports if uh, you know the weather conditions or whatever you know cause you to shift from a pass offense to more running because it's snowing during a football game like you have to take that into consideration and you know get people to understand that
1: that's why every race and every game is its own like unique uh situation and own unique circumstance i mean it's why you know other sports Have a win loss column and they're all independent. The wins are independent of each other, right? Sometimes in running, we tend to, I think, blend them all together and think once I've demonstrated a certain aptitude or fitness level, I have this expectation that the money in my bank account only goes up. And again, it is like we said, context specific. I'll give a quick example of when I had an athlete deal with this, uh, like Daniel Herrera, when he set the Mexican uh, national record in the mile around 356 in Boston area um he then went over to europe to ireland to race a couple mile races in the uh, ireland area right and he travels across the atlantic different time zones he just ran 356 and then he runs his first mile race there at like dublin games or something he runs like 402 and he's like what the hell happened i just ran how did i run two seconds per lap slower (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I go, Dan, you just traveled across the Atlantic, you know, or enraced, and, and you just, diff- you first time to Ireland, all this new stuff, right? All this new novel stimulus. Like the body wasn't ready to come back, you know, after like two days off the airplane, obviously, and compete at a high level. You know, sure enough, as he acclimated over there, a couple days later, four or five days later, comes back and runs a highly competitive like 358 at um, the Morton games or letter Kenny or something like that. Right. So it just shows you, it's like we, we as coaches have to be cognizant and then also um, remind athletes constantly that the bank account doesn't just get bigger overall throughout the trajectory of a season or uh, a career. Yes, it does, but there's daily variance. There's volatility, and that volatility is okay. Um, you know, and I've had many times where an athlete has had a series of really um, crappy races, right? They just couldn't put it together. Um, and, but it was, you know, and had poor results and poor um, placings. And they just feel, felt really downtrodden. And nothing was wrong with like their health, right? Their biomarkers or anything. And I had to remind them, hey, you're in a, a, a period of really heavy demand, Maybe not just from the training, but also life, school, work, what have you. Uh, take it easy on yourself. Like, just remember, like, what we're doing now is setting you up to be able to do things at this higher level you want to do during that peak period, and that's where again we got to remember the peak part of peak performance is that stress plus rest equals growth, and you got to put in that stress you know, at a really high level. But you also have to make sure that you complement it, you know, in the micro and macro with rest so that you can get that growth in that certain and express that in that certain time frame uh, in that period and then put that on cycle and repeat. But this is what's being ripped away from us right now is that ability to create these cycles of peaks um, that are so healthy to really focus and concentrate people's attentions on. And so now it's kind of The thing that is of concern in this era of the the COVID pandemic is where and how to focus our athletes' attention so that when we do have these a lot of restrictions lifted and we can go back to a kind of normal sequence of a season and competition, that they are going to be in a better position uh, versus being a little bit too diffused and too concerned about what's happening in the moment. And are they fit enough? are the workouts their times or they're posting competitive enough with, you know, people who they consider their peers or not. Uh, And as a coach, we need to, you know, uh, express the rally cry to call them back and say, Hey, 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 this is a rainy day. This is a rainy period. This will pass. Sunnier days are ahead. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next month, but the sunny days are ahead. There's still something to get ready for and look forward to, even though we can't specifically say when, but, Pandemics don't last forever. <laughs> we got to remember that. Even though when you're in the middle of them, it feels like they are.
0: Yeah, you know, and I think you, you nailed it there. Is It's giving them something to look forward to and bridging that gap. And, you know, it's framing it as, again... I kind of outline how I'm dealing with it, but like the fitness kind of takes care of itself. We don't need to press things. We we know how to develop this. We need to be fit enough so that when push when it the time comes and we know when to race, we can race, right? Yeah. And uh, sometimes you know, with one of my uh, post collegiate professional athletes, she got into the marathon and and found out six weeks before the London marathon was going to happen. So. This is really a testament of she was doing, you know, not ideal marathon training, but we'll see it was training ready to get her ready for, um, you know, maintaining fitness at about 80 to 90%. And we're going to ramp up for six weeks and see what happens. And I think, again, from the fitness standpoint, that's what you do. And then from the performance side, as you move up into these high performance, I think you you know we talked about here is how do you create competition but also high performance as you said is about health how do you support your athletes during a pandemic when you know their their control has been gone they don't have their normal routines um some some of them are being you know uh, for essentially forced onto campus and staying in their dorms all day and not really going to classes and sitting on online classes so how do you support them and give them the necessary foundation of well-being so that when time the time comes like they're in a position to do what they love to do
1: i think we have to remember too with that steve it's it's fostering a sense of community um you know that's the hardest part is i uh, you know, and this is a tangent and probably this will end. So on this tangent, I mean, I know for me being, having been ripped away from the um, travel and ebb and flow of like the meet schedule of the season and having looked forward to like an Olympic trials coming up and then the summer racing, se- you know, season and fall and et cetera, you know, not having the, that rhythm has been very difficult because that's majority. the majority of where my um, socialization happens with my friends and peers, right? We see each other at track meets. Um, and now it's like texts and calls and they're great, you know, and that's a good way to stay connected, but it doesn't, repla- uh, doesn't fully replace uh, that, that gap, right? And that's where as a coach, you know, or anyone who has a leadership position, whether small or big, Uh, meaning you have the ability to create a rally cry for people to gather around a vision, a purpose, uh, and a direction. Like we now more than ever is the time um, that we have value. Uh, Again, with people who might be, you know, levels of seniority ahead of you on your organization's totem pole who might not be making maybe the most intelligent or, um, safe decisions, you know, or people who you think are doing a great job. Like, it doesn't necessarily matter what decisions are being made above your pay grade. It matters who can you impact right now that uh, you're in charge of or uh, who look are looking to you to provide some guidance. And I think this is where the coach more than ever uh, has a time to shine to keep young people or athletes, even if they're you know, aging young people, as I call them, Uh, (laughs) um, excited and um, focused and connected, Um, you know, and that's great. We have all the connection machines we do. Uh, It's just taking advantage of that because, again, it can get really lonely or it can be perceived really lonely when all we have is just a... a, um, uh, our, our room and our laptops, or you know, our cell phones, instead of that that face to face, human to human uh, connection and touch that we so crave. And you know, handshakes, high fives, and hugs will come back into vogue. I guarantee it. Uh, there'll be a thing we can do again freely without any concern. But until then, that's where, as a coach, we just got to find new, novel ways to keep people connected and keep communities engaged, um, so that when we we, we have this uh, return, all that pent-up demand um, that's, you know, accumulating right now. We can just celebrate that revival when it makes safe, uh, sense and when it's safe to do so again.
0: Amen. That's what it's about is, you know, getting ready for <laughs> hopefully better times ahead and keeping that optimism going. So uh,
1: Yeah, some of your days are ahead. yes guarantee we don't know when though but they are guaranteed
0: (laughs) at at some point it's not getting false hope but it's knowing that things will get better and we've just gotta kind of manage and do the best we can until then so um we hope you as coaches are doing the best you can by upping your game listening to this podcast checking out high performance west checking out the scholar program uh the academy of scholarship and everything we're doing there so You know, hopefully we're filling your day with things to do, which I'm sure you have enough of if you're coaching at the high school level or even the collegiate level with all the uncertainty. But take care of of yourself. Yes,
1: take care of yourself and join us. Like I think that's been one of the great things is this time has really given Steve and I an opportunity to reflect and hear from a lot of people um, who we are just overwhelmingly thankful for that have benefited or have been positively impacted by all the things Steve and I put out there, both stuff that's free. And we put a lot of free stuff out there and stuff that we, you know, um, ask that people pay for to support us and support uh, what we're doing. Um, Because again, the the importance is the ideas circulate. You know, I think a lot of times people are like, Oh, you should only pay for, have paid for content or keep everything behind a paywall. And I don't think that's the case. I think, there's a lot of power in like circulation of ideas and the more we can freely circulate the better. Um, But also kind of the more in depth and juicier stuff. Yeah. It it requires a little bit of um, uh, sweat and hustle on Steve and I part. We do ask for a little bit of, um, you know, dollars for that, but it's not a lot, I think. And so again, join us uh, if it makes sense. You know, we're going to come online here with different grades, uh, uh, you know, levels. So, you know, we're going to have full members, uh, what we call members for High Performance West and then scholars, uh, which would just be a little different uh, offering to hopefully, again, just create a better community and level everyone up so that when we do get back to track racing and cross country racing and road racing as normal, you know, everyone's going to be coaches and athletes alike better for this, uh, this period uh, of reflection and improvement than not.